Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Series 2, Episode 9 of Drive-by Cinema. Paul, my host, have you ever seen a hawk kill a horse? Have I ever seen a hawk kill a horse? It's something every man should see at least once. Kind of, yeah. That's a quote from the movie we watched today, Paul. Maybe you missed that. Oh, you weren't speaking metaphorically. Okay. Right, yes, well, what did well, we move Were they? Were they speaking metaphorically? I don't know. Can Attention. a hawk kill a horse? What do you it think? all went a bit trippy in the middle, didn't it? Let's be honest. So, uh, 2021, uh, The Green Knight, and welcome to my host or co-host, Richard Two. Richard, Hello. set us off on this epic, epic quest. Hold, hold on, hold on. We don't jump straight into the movie. No, we, we don't. We have to do administrative tasks first, don't we? Yes, we have to be whipped. Self-flagellate, like some bizarre religious sect. But here we go. What have we got then, Paul? What from what confessions? Do you have? A, how long very, has it been since your last confession? Do you mean masturbation by that? <laughs> uh, look, uh, <laughs> I kneel at my bed, uh, <laughs> consult the divine material. No. Uh, Hosts, we watched last week, episode eight, and I don't think there's anything to say about it. It was, it was, it was mercifully short. Not that it was bad, but it was, it was no. a beautifully short movie. Uh, and I think everything we said was completely correct. All good, yeah. I'm well. Julian has offered to explain the workings of sewage systems to us to put us out of our septic tank misery. Yeah, if he does that, I hope he would use the correct terminology: sludge, slurry, and. Something else. Grey There's water. a scum layer at the top. Scum a... too, also, yeah. Sludge, slurry, scum. There are three definite definite distinctions to be made of the contents of your, of, your, of your septic tank. So I hope he gets all that right when he's explaining it. Now, the deputy la- Labour leader, she got in trouble, didn't she, for describing Tories as scum at the party conference? Oh, she did. Angela... Angela Rayner. Rayner, yeah. But I thought, you know, scum is a perfectly accurate word for Tories because they do float to the top. Don't they? The scum also rises as uh, they, they find themselves says, yeah. on the top yeah. of the social strata for one reason or another. It's just it's just a description. It's not pejorative, is it? I mean, only if you see it that way. Sure, yeah. Each to their own, I would guess. Similarly, I don't think we can be criticised for driving past the Tory Party conference with the song "Boris Johnson is a fucking cunt" on the <laughs> on the stereo. Can we? That's just. Comment. It's, it's true as well. We didn't it? get very near, though, did we? There were policemen blocking our way, essentially. I thought they'd be spilling out of Manchester City Centre wine bars, you know, guffawing and sort of being Henry's, but we didn't see that much in Evans. It was very quiet, wasn't it, the whole evening? Perhaps they sidled back to their hotels quietly. We have had a physical encounter, haven't we? That's, that's the latest news. We've actually uh, met up. We did, yeah. We, we met up for next week's movie. We, all will be revealed, I guess, at the end of this. Uh, and uh, we did meet up at Manchester, not GMEX, uh, where the Tory conference is being held, but at Manchester Trafford Centre, or as Mancunians like to say, Manchester Trafford Centre. And uh, yeah, and what a wonderful place it is, and what a wonderful time we did have. But we'll find more. Uh, we'll find out more about that in uh, episode ten, I guess. Unless Rich is going to spill the beans right now. So I mean, we've, we've headed towards Tory conference and uh, to prove that we are recording at the time of recording, Boris has just delivered his keynote speech, I believe it's called, or he's amazingly devoid of any content. But some jokes, yeah, and poor old, Ke- poor old Sir Kiefer, poor old Sir Rolling Stones of Starmer, 
uh, is oh, you know the focus of his jokes. One or two, a little bit funny. Uh, he manages to call him Captain Hindsight, which not disagreeing or agree with it. You know, is quite a witty comment. But there's there's Boris jokes. Ahoy, jokes are plenty. It's all one big joke, isn't it? He did do a lot of alliteration, he which did, yeah. is quite fitting for the subject of uh, this week's movie, being a work of alliterative prose. But he also had a very astounding policy, which is to train British workers to do untrained, unskilled jobs. <laughs> you know, so if you want, if you want to sign up for a, an untrained skills course, you know, which will obviously see you right in doing any un, un, unskilled job. Now's your moment, really. But it will be high pay. It'll be very high pay because of inflation. So there's there's an upside to everything, isn't there? There's an upside to the downside of uplit, sunlit uplands, isn't there? If you're upside down, if you're upside down and roundabout, nobody knows what up and down is anymore. So I guess we're all headed to the sunlit uplands, aren't we? So, by way of meander, onto today's movie, uh, which yes. is, Richard, The Green Knight, 2020. Uh, yes. And also released simultaneously at the at movies, as well as on to Amazon Prime. Is that not right? I don't know. You said that, but I just watched it uh-huh. on Amazon Prime. I didn't know it was in the, the movie. It's at the movies, and it's huh? uh, you know 15 million budget. It's made 18 million at the box, box office already. So, because, I guess, you know... The financing for Prime as well is separate to that. We have to, we have to, we have to say it's a success at the moment. This story, based on a poem, a work of uh, medieval literature, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, regarded as the greatest chivalric romance poem of the medieval period. Yeah, yeah. You see, I thought it might have been based this whole thing before I found out it was based around King Arthur and whatnot. I thought it was like a classic quest that was, you know, maybe based on one of those slightly shonky RPG games, you know, where the the villagers that you meet kind of just have those repeated arm movements. <laughs> but it wasn't. It's not that way around, you know. It's actually based on a whole a whole history of literature. You, know. you have to say that I think this movie only gets made because of the success of things like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, definitely off the back of Game of Thrones, which itself, it wouldn't exist without without Tolkien, would it? But the only reason Game of Thrones became successful, I think, was just the, the huge amount of money they were able to throw behind it. The thing about this story, which makes it unusual, is, is it's kind of weird. It's pretty damn weird. It isn't a straight... Isn't a straight up and down the line like quest? It's a giant acid trip, isn't it? Really? Well, it's a mushroom trip, doesn't he? He takes mushrooms halfway through. I was going to say there was maybe too much primrose and nutmeg tea during the Hey Nonny Nonny music, (laughs) during the Hey Nonny Nonny festival, Strawberry Fields Festival outside Cambridge. Well, it wasn't based in Cambridge; it was based in Cornwall, wasn't it? But uh, uh, oh well, well, we've got some stuff. We've got some stuff to talk about there. Let me tell but, you. But I didn't realise he drank the mushroom tea. I thought it was like primrose and nutmeg. I thought it was old-fashioned psychedelics of the oldie British variety. It's going to be very difficult to talk about this movie without referring back to the poem, I think, and its original story. It's can we just go off the bus stop it. at this point, Richard? Oh, Let's t- okay. Can we just go off at this bus stop and catch a later bus? Because when you say the poem, you, you kind yes. of imply there's a definitive version of this whole... This whole mythology, and there isn't really. Oh, uh, ah, no, wait, hold on. So you're talking about Arthurian legends in general? 
In general, yeah. Which are a mishmash of different works by different people, repeated tales changed over time. You know, there are some that people consider more definitive than others. Everyone yeah. refers to Lamour d'Arthur by Mallory, Thomas Mallory. But actually, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight yeah, was a poem, Go on. a specific poem written by Tennyson. an unknown, no, an unknown poet. But it was kind of lost. It was lost to the scholars and literature for a long time and then sort of came to light, emerged. I think it had been hidden away in the British Library somewhere. And... It's highly regarded because it's unusual, and it wasn't part of the general Wefton Wharf of the uh, the rest of the Arthurian legends because it had been kind of lost. But also, and by the way, I only know this because Melvin Bragg did in, in our time on this. It was actually it was the day that I went to get one of my jabs because I was listening to it as I drove wow. to the the COVID jab center. <laughs> But it's well worth listening to, and it's a really good episode. So, because one of his guests was Simon Armitage, who's a scholar and historian, who did a translation of Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. He's not the only one. I think Tolkien did a translation of it as well. But it's beautifully written in... It was It's contemporaneous with Chaucer, right? It's 14th century, yeah. I've just found it now, yeah. But... Chaucer's English became the English that we all know. And so you can kind of half understand Chaucer because that's the ancestor of our modern English in, in many ways. But the poet who wrote Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was not from the same region, which is why I'm coming back to where, where this was set. And he was... Well, I've seen it described in two ways. One as a North Midlands accent uh, or dialect but also as uh, Cheshire, which I take to mean Macclesfield. So, so he was a Mac lad. So essentially he was Welsh in And Arthurian legends do have terms. a strong Welsh things. So, it, it, But if it starts in Tintagel or Camelot or wherever that is, and he has to go six days north, we are certainly talking about Wales, maybe, you know, the northwest of England. In fact... I think Simon Armitage did a documentary on TV at some stage. I haven't watched it. It does look interesting. I may hunt it out. Where he tell, tells the story of the poem while going to the locations that, that were depicted in the poem. And it is in the Northwest. So it's, it's around here, basically. But to, to give you an idea, you know, this poem is written in a strongly alliterative way. So in, in a sense, we get, we get a deep snapshot of the diversity and variety of English at that time, don't we? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons scholars find it so interesting and important. But the other reason, it's just fabulously weird, this whole story. It's not like many of the other uh, chivalric romances of the era, which were much more what we would, you know, what we would now recognise as like a quest, like the Grail quest, you know, the knights go off, they face some challenge. It's a hero's journey type thing. They face some challenges, they come back, you know, uh, and they get the girl and they settle down in Camelot, whatever. This story is not like that at all. It's really, it's subtle and layered and interesting and it seems to be saying some weird things, which I think is, it's all the better for, which is, I think, why it's regarded so well. So, in terms of the historicity, I guess, of the documents of which this film is based on, what's interesting here, I think we'll get to your interesting points, I think, in the gubbins of this of this podcast, but so it's fourteenth century a fourteenth century alliterative prose prose poem that it's based on. Yeah, okay. 
directly. I mean, does it guess? I, I guess it follows that story fairly, fairly faithfully. So for me, I mean, there's great location scouting in this movie. But what's interesting is, therefore, they chose to present it as a medieval tale of the 14th century. So we had castles and we had people being medieval. But, I mean, the legend of Arthur itself does refer to a 5th or 6th century either god or legendary king. It's a Romano-British kind of era, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, there wouldn't be castles. Of the castles, Not Norman castles, no. Not no Norman be. castles. So I thought that anachronism, not jarring, but interesting, because they, obviously they had to say, are we going to base it in the time of the story or in the time of the legend that the story ultimately refers to? And they, they took the first choice, which is fair enough. But at first I was puzzled. I was thinking, this isn't Celtic, you know. Uh, but well, this fair is, enough. All, all Arthurian like stories and retellings suffer with this, don't they? They all want to depict chivalric knights wearing full plate armor in castles, you know, with lances and long swords and stuff. Which none of that would have existed in the Romano British era. Well, this is it. You know, the so, first scene is his girlfriend prostitute is wearing bells, not on her toes, but all around her body. You know, to to warn people that she's a that she's a hooker kind of thing. Uh, and she's like walking up to the church as if it's like a pilgrimage kind of thing. And this just wouldn't happen in either Celtic or Anglo-Saxon Britain. It's like there, there weren't those. I mean, there were fortifications and farmstead communities based around citadels, but it wasn't like the streets of medieval York. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. It wasn't so hey nonny nonny. It was like oh yes, let's go and meet the Lord of the Manor, and maybe he'll give us a nice he'll give us a nice meal, you know, for being loyal subjects. I mean, there wasn't that level of feudal organisation in Anglo-Saxon, and particularly not in in warlord Celtic communities. So, but you know, the Arthurian legends like they're being written down in a post-Norman era, and it's yeah. suffused with that Norman love of uh, nobility and chivalry and knighthood. But Geoffrey of Monmouth was the first guy to really write, I think, in the 12th century, these tales. Or he's one of the people who is attested of, you know, having written about the uh, the Green Knight, Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, but if you go back later, I mean, obviously these, these, these myths have been around for a long time because a lot of it, a lot of his writing was based on the early writing by Chrétien, who I guess was a Norman French person of the 10th century. And he was the guy that added Lancelot and the Holy yeah. Grail yeah. to the whole Merlin, Guinevere, Excalibur legend, you see. So those editions, we know Lancelot and uh, the Holy Grail were Norman editions too. And they didn't exist in the original, either Welsh or Cornish or, if you like, native British myths. So... So yeah, but it was interesting to read that it was a largely unhistorical, or is that a historical myth? I isn't they don't think it's based on any any no. king, not any one no. king, but any king of the Celts. You see, so no, it's it's more like Robin Hood than, than anything else, isn't it? We should tell the story though. We've been chatting away about the bloody poem, which great though it is, the the, the story of this film is interesting. So we start off as you say. Uh, would you say Gawain or Gawain? Gawain. They say they say something close to Gavin, don't they? Gavin, Gawain, 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 or something like that. Uh, well, he, he's depicted as a bit of a ladies' man, isn't he? Or he's certainly having his way with this attractive uh, prostitute, Lady of the Night. Yes. And this is a Christmas story. I don't know whether you were aware of that, Paul. 
That's not obvious, is it, from the film? But actually, the feast that he's going to... Is with... that why the Green Knight's dressed up like a Christmas tree? <laughs> the, 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 he's attending the Christmas Day feast with the rest of the Knights of the Round Table. And oh, the Round the Table, Queen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has he been invited, the Green Knight? Or does he just turn up un- unannounced? Like ah, well... Dark, dark shadow at the door, so to speak. Well, if you recall, Morgan Le Fay, I think is Arthur's half sister or something or she's some related distantly to Arthur or Gawain isn't she I, I think she she depicted as Gawain's mother in this she is in this movie I don't, there's, I don't, there's some sure whether, mutterings yeah. about why they decided to do that but I didn't really follow them in detail Morgan Le Fay who is a wizardess in the, in the mould of Merlin I think a rival yes. to Merlin she is, actually conjures the Green Knight or summons him I or see and I think that's later on, uh, Gawain meets a ghost and he stops her troubled wanderings by recovering her head from her dead body <laughs> and putting it back on her, the rest of her body. And she tells him when, she, when he does that, that the Green Knight is someone he knows. And I assume wow. that is indicating that it's Morgan Le Fay because he doesn't know the Green Knight in any other sense by that point. I see, I see. Uh, the king is sitting down for Christmas Day lunch. Presumably there's a turkey and stuff uh, and potatoes. Oh, they wouldn't have had potatoes, would they? Because it's not been invented yet, had they? Francis so Drake the, had to invent that's potato right, yeah. before we could have roast spuds. So we've had per- parsnips or something, wouldn't they? Turnips. Yeah, and carrots, uh, beetroot, I think. Uh, beetroot's a much better food, really. Oh, and the turkey. The Is the turkey American? Shit. Turkey... They've had, they, oh, they've had goose, Is... Because at the beginning, there's a goose fighting a goat, so they must have had goose. The turkey isn't American, no. I think we took turkeys over to oh, shit. the glorious... Or maybe they flew the after the boats. That's probably what happened. <laughs> they can fly. Well, they can't fly these days as, as they've been bred to be huge things, but they could originally fly turkeys. Yeah. Wow. Not very well. but Okay. King Arthur says... He's a bit bored, I think. He says, before we sit down and eat, let's, let's have a story. Oh. He does... Let's have a story. Old-fashioned, old-fashioned forms of entertainment. Round the piano we go. Exactly. He wants a story of adventure. Now, in the film here, Gawain is a bit embarrassed by about being asked this because he's kind of young. And the only adventures he's had are between the sheets, I think. Yeah. He doesn't really want to tell that on Christmas Day. <laughs> Although I'm sure it would have a, a ready audience. Maybe he's a bit embarrassed about the Queen being there. He's interrupted, basically, by the Green Knight riding his horse rather rudely into the Great Hall. Yeah. Now, he's been instructed to come and prick a finger uh, and send somebody to sleep for, like, so many years. He's like, God, <laughs> there's no baby here. I'm going to have to extemporise. And then he, then, he, then he comes up with his challenge, doesn't he? He does present a, cha- a challenge. Now, this is a thing which, again, in Melvin, Bragg's, in Melvin Bragg's In Our Time, they talk about in depth. Apparently, the beheading game is a common feature of a lot of literature of this period. The heroic literature. It's like a Russian roulette, isn't it, really? Sort of. But it's subverted in this, and this is, again, why it's different from a lot of other stuff. But there's an intertextual understanding that people reading this may have well understood what was going on here in a way that is not made clear, perhaps, in this retelling or this version of the poem. Because in the poem and the book, what he says is something along the lines of, uh, I challenge you to, you know, to strike me, and in a year's, in, in a year's hence, I will return the, the blow. However so, kind. yes, yeah. However so you choose, so it will be returned. Kind of. 
That's great right. medieval delivery language. Yeah. And this Green Knight, by the way, came in carrying a holly bush and an enormous axe. <laughs> now, you might well think, and I, I guess people reading this or hearing this story at the time may have thought, well, the smart thing to do here is hit him with a holly bush. <laughs> And then a year, a year hence, he'll hit you with a holly, holly bush. Drops a gun. Yeah. You know. Well, that's what but I thought, yeah. That seems... Is that what the game is, is about? The beheading game elsewhere in other stories is much more upfront. It's like the antagonist will come to the hero and say, you chop my head off, and then I'll chop your head off. And it's... I think it's presented as a straight-up-down challenge to the hero. And I'm yeah. not sure... I mean, it's a pretty weird game, isn't it? But I think, in a sense, maybe the hero is supposed to think, well, if I chop his head off, he can't chop my head off because he'll be dead. But of course, there's yeah. like some supernatural thing going on. Which is exactly what happens in this game. But he doesn't say that you have to behead him. So it's a question about intent, isn't it? Yeah, and I think if, so. if given the opportunity to... I don't know. Is this chivalry, you know, to 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 not take the hand because he hasn't declared himself a foe, has he? The Green Knight. No, and I don't think he is a foe. Actually, he's sort of testing the knights. He's like, it's, 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 this is chivalry, isn't it? You know, it's like the, the a handshake quality on the, assurance guy. <laughs> the handshake of jousters, you know, why we shake with our right hand, kind of thing. You know, yeah. the proffered hand was 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 a demonstration of strength, but it was also a test uh, of trust because you know when you offer your hand, you can't be carrying. Your prodding stick, can you? So, so there's danger in shaking hands. So, is it is it is it is it that kind of thing? Like saying, you know, if offered the chance to do good or bad, would you choose to do bad? Yeah, maybe they should have shook his hand. Now, in the poem, I think what happens is Arthur, and what he's done in the poem, which is a bit different from the film, is the Green Knight has presented his axe. He's like and knelt down, I think, or something. Take and my th- axe, behead me. Well, he's not or said that. So. Yeah, he suggested it's just, it. It's purely suggestive. And I think Arthur has got up and taken the axe up. And I think in the in the poem, Gawain is like, "Well, this is not the thing our king should be doing. I'll I'll take this on board, whatever this is." So he takes the axe off the king, of King Arthur, and he then beheads the Green Knight. In the movie, they've changed it slightly, uh, and it's a different message in a way. The king, for a start, is is really infirm by this stage, isn't he? He's quite ill and not really yeah. able to get in the action. Uh, and Gawain steps up and says, I'll do it, but I don't have a sword. And Arthur offers him Excalibur, which in itself is incredibly symbolic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Gawain takes up Excalibur and beheads the Green Knight. So it's shaded differently, but it's still very subtle and... I think it's supposed to indicate the way they set up in the movie is Gawain, you know, is embarrassed that he's never done anything knightly and he's not gone out on a quest. So yeah. when he's presented with the opportunity to stand up and do something in front of all of the, the knights, you know, he wields Excalibur and gleefully chops the head off the Green Knight. And and they all seem quite pleased that he's done it. But of course, the what happens next is that the Green Knight's body gets up, picks his head up, and his head... I'll see you in 365 yeah. days. And then he gets on his horse and he rides away. Gallops off, yeah. Leaving his axe as well. Uh, which I think in the poem is more sort of like the prize for the game in a way. In modern days, there, there's a, an old Lenny Henry joke about we'll have a competition to see who wins at kicking each other in the balls. And then, you know, Lenny Henry goes first. And the other guy <laughs> says, right, my go. He says, no, 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 you win. Kind of so... <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I suppose that's that's it. Yeah, that's the contemporary uh, Green Knight story. I mean, you know, plot spoiler. What it what it does become is is not uh, a morality tale, but uh, a test of character tale, doesn't it? Where where oh, Gawain finds yeah. finds his bravery and finds his instinct to embrace the battle, so to speak. Uh, and that, to me, rings of Anglo-Saxonism. You know, the idea that you should live as a god and die in battle as a mortal uh, with no regrets. And, and so, you know, your passage to Valhalla will be... Oh, not Valhalla, the, the, this Anglo-Saxon version of it, which is pretty similar. Your passage through to the underworld will be a sewer kind of thing, through your bravery. Uh, I mean, there, I, there is resonance there, but I, I don't really know because, I mean... Celtic heroic tales don't particularly survive, do they? So maybe Celtic culture had a had a similar kind of approach to to eulogising its uh, its great and its good. Gawain, I think, spends the next year not really doing much of you know of worth other than shagging around. Well, no, he's not yeah. shagging around, is he? I think he's pretty faithful to his prostitute girlfriend. He is, yeah, yeah. We get quite a lot of that kind of. Atonal, or is it alternatively scaled flute and tub-thumping music? Ah, yeah. Ah. And there's a montage describing... In a sense, all this film is a montage. <laughs> there's a montage describing uh, the passage of the year. And that's a nod, again, to the poem, which is... is it? It's regarded as having you know amazing descriptions of both the landscape that he travels through, ultimately, but also the changing seasons through that year... There's great descriptions of how the seasons change that 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 apparently are, you know, very beautiful. So I think the music 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 in some respects was accurate for the Middle Ages, but maybe not for Celtic or or Saxon times. Uh, However, I don't know how they decide what what scale they used in the, you know, in the folk thirteenth fourteenth century uh, before we got our, our our modern scale. Don't know how they do that. I'm not sure it's attested. The other thing was like the hey nonny nonniness of it was muted. I think we we kind of you know it kind of at times descended into depictions of the Middle Ages of a Monty Python esque level of filth, <laughs> which I I appreciated. You know, particularly when we meet the scavenger in the middle. Like you know, it's it's very gritty, isn't it? At moments, it's not high fantasy, is it? No, that's right. No, I so think- I appreciated that. You know, it, it kind of felt real as a result. His girlfriend is called Essel. And Essel, yeah. She's played by Alicia Vikander. Do you know who? Do you know what she's been in? I no, who she, what's she been in? Well, she's made a name for herself as Tomb Raider. She's the latest, I think, the latest. Tomb no Raider. way. Yeah. The, the latest Laura. Okay, and she's also playing the lady. Isn't that right? Ah, yes, exactly. So weirdly, we have to, we have to wind forward. I, I think it's again. I don't. I think that's sort of according. Is to the that poem. the cup of mushroom tea that did that or not? Well, I think there's a couple of points here. So we're coming now to the end of the year, and yes. Gawain does the the nightly thing, and he gets on his horse, uh, and he puts on his stuff, and he takes the axe with him, and he sets out. Another change from the poem, though, is. In the film, I think it's Guinevere and maybe Merlin and maybe Morgan Le Fay. They make a girdle for him, that green belt that he wears. That's quite prominent in the rest of the film. I think in the poem, that's not the origin of that girdle. And I think that's quite a big change. But, well, we, we can come to it later. But the importance of that girdle is it is enchanted. And 
they believe that it will protect the wearer from harm. So the idea being that though he's going to go to the Green Knight to be beheaded, the girdle will protect him. That's the that's the theory, Paul. Yes, How do you feel about that? Would you go to your beheading? I'm, with I'm a- just reveling. I'm just re- sorry, I'm just reeling at the fact that his impulse control and you know made him. Knowing that it was going to happen to him, and he get his head cut off. He decided to cut somebody's head off. It's just kind of like, I mean, it's there's a bargain here. Just don't cut his head off. You know, maybe give him some money or something. Exactly. Or, you know. It's weird, isn't it? But also weird that he bothered to go. So again, it, that's real knightly kind of duty, isn't it? It's, isn't it all strange? It doesn't make sense to a modern, in a modern perspective, does it? Well, it because doesn't. We it don't, doesn't because we do. Understand. We don't share that. Well, it doesn't make sense because I don't think we share their idea of courtly honor, do we? It's an interesting. Don't point forget you that while while knights are behaving like this, they're also backstabbing and they're also going behind, you know, their leaders, presumably. Well, all I mean, the, the, yeah, policy, yeah. the politics of court don't stop whilst the chivalry continues. So it's yeah. a highly duplicitous world that they, exa- that they live in, isn't it? It's a, it's a very much shame, guilt, honour, and status-based world, you know, isn't it? Well, I was going to talk about that, you know, particularly in contemporary times. quite a vacuous world, you know, in terms of how they represent themselves and what happens to them. Well, in this era, we don't really ourselves live in a, an honour-bound culture, but there are still no. strongly honour-bound cultures. And, you know, I guess Japan and China, to a lesser extent, parts of India and Pakistan, Japan, possibly, maybe, yeah. certainly, have very strong honour culture things still, usually related to control of women, I suppose, and their sexuality. But nonetheless, people do things there that would be unthinkable without some strong, overweening kind of uh, code that they're following. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't really... So I, what I'm saying is I don't understand his motivation to do all those things. And I can't really put myself in the mindset where I could understand it. But we're not alien to it. Just That's don't just... don't cut his head off, you know. <laughs> then it won't you won't get your head cut off. But the impetus is to prove yourself brave, isn't there? You know the value of being brave in medieval and particularly in Anglo-Saxon society, maybe in Celtic society. You know, a man who isn't brave isn't isn't part of the community. They would be shunned. They would be otherwise. They would be marginalised and ostracised, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would have to become. They would have to be thrown out into the wilds, and you know, live like a hyena, so to speak. So he's going six days north, according to the instructions left by the Green Knight to the Green Chapel, six days north of there. And I guess that's yeah. Well, that's obviously a considerable distance to go, particularly in that era. But it, so, so to interrupt, but do you know where it is in relation to Macclesfield? Or are there any guesses? Macclesfield is where I imagine uh, the the poets who have lived. Uh, so, right. I, but I think that means he must have gone up through, perhaps through Wales, maybe through to the Peak District, uh, and I've heard it said he ends up sort of in the Wirral or somewhere around there. So it, wow. it's probably around where you are, where the Green Chapel is, Paul. I don't know if you had a look for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he's going to on this journey. He's going to meet tribulations and your classic kind of uh, chivalric romance style. The first one depicted in the movie is that he gets robbed. He gets tied up and robbed by three urchins. Yeah, by scavengers who presumably didn't follow heroic code and got thrown out of their, of their far-state communities, yeah. Quite cleverly. He was, I quite like the sinister niceness that he's approached yes. with. Yeah. Uh, it's good. 
It was so they do a good patter, you know. I can see how they made their money. Yeah, it was really well done, and they leave him Quite tied menacing. up, leave him for dead, effectively. But he manages to free himself because he, he wakes up looking at a skeleton that. No, I think that's not. It's not him facing a skeleton. I think that's him seeing a vision of himself. Okay, is this before or after the mushroom tea? Ritual? It's before. It's before. But, but I want okay. to make the point that you could interpret this movie in, in one sense that he did die here, and you know everything else is like yeah. the, his imagination in the last few seconds of his precisely delirium yeah. and death, isn't it? That's how I took it. I took it. He was dead. <laughs> And this was just well, like his journey into the the afterlife, maybe after this point. Yeah, it could be. It could be it's a psychological that. journey rather than a real journey. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, after this point, Gawain has got nothing. You know, his horse is gone. He's not got his armor anymore. He's lost his girdle and his weaponry, and he just has to push on effectively. And he does so. Uh, and it's middle of winter, of course, so he's not faring very well. Does he meet large giant? People in the mist before. No, that's that's later, that's later. That's later. Later. Okay. Sorry. Go on. Continue. There, well, he does, as we, as I mentioned, he does find his way to an abandoned kind of house or cottage or something. And Where he promptly falls asleep like Goldilocks. And he gets visited by a ghost. You know, a a girl visits him, and explains that, you know, she was killed. I think by the same people who, who robbed him, and uh-huh. she says that they threw a head in the river. And Gawain dives in and retrieves a head to stop her restless wow. spirit walking the earth. Uh, and she, I think she rewards him. Does she give him back? Uh, he, he winds up yes. with the axe again. Uh, maybe the girl. Again. That's right, yeah. He's got it back now for, for completing that quest for that ghost. Now, at some point, though, on his journey, he's obviously very hungry and very tired and cold, and he falls down an embankment in a forest, and he finds... A little stand of mushrooms, which he ravenously immediately eats, and also nearly immediately throws up. <laughs> and after that point, you know, I'm not sure we can trust anything <laughs> that happens ah. in the film. The world turns upside down. He meets huge, giant, sort of blobby people in the mist, and there's a talking fox. What does the fox say? Quite a lot, actually. The fox gives us some really good advice. Talking animals seems to me, particularly in an oral tradition, but it seems to me that talking animals are always a way of the author signifying to the listener or the reader that this isn't, you know, this isn't real. Yes. You know, biblical literists who take the Bible as literally true, you know, I think really miss this essential point that, like, in book one, chapter one of the Bible, there's a talking snake. <laughs> and, you know, we're talking about... The audience for this are, are agrarian people who work with animals all the time. You know, when they know they don't talk. Exactly, yeah. exactly. When a when a character pops up talking, we know it's not real. Uh, if you have any sense about you, if you're a, you've any depth to the song, what does the fox say? Is it just one huge literary textual analysis of, of, of talking animals in, in literature, Rich? <laughs> it's just my view, Paul. I don't know whether it's well. No, no, I I, th- I think it holds a lot of water. Yeah. Uh, and the, it's not too chatty, actually, is it? This fox—it only talks quite near the end, actually. Most of the time, it's just like a. Fox. It growls in a meaningful way. Also. It does, yeah. It's his, but it trails or it trails or leads him. You know, it's his companion, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now Gawain is sort of saved from his deprivations at some point by arriving at a big castle. He arrives at a big house or castle, 
Housey Castle. Falls asleep again, like Goldilocks. Let's say, let's call it a manor, a manor house. And he meets the lord of the house, Lord Bertalak, and his wife, Lady Bertalak. And we get the second game of the story. A game within a game, really. It's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> this game is set by the lord. And what the lord says is he's basically a bargain. The lord is going to go out hunting. He wants to go out hunting. And he's letting Gawain stay in his manor house to recover, to recuperate with his wife. And he says, uh, anything that I find in when I'm out hunting, I'll share with you. And anything you find in the in the house, you must share with me. Not including my wife. No, actually, he, he explicitly does not exclude his wife. Right. So the bargain is anything that Gawain gets in the manor, he has to share with Lord Bertak. Dirty pair of dogging swingers. <laughs> well, this is it, you know. Well, you're old in Amur, you're rich, you know. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you lure young knights in. <laughs> young knights say, oh, you, can, you can nick anything from the house and stay a while. <laughs> I think Gerard Depardieu plays a robber in plays a robber in France as a like a, an arty kind of movie from the 80s where it's a bored aristocratic couple and they just let, they they effectively invite people to come and rob their house because they're so bored with life. Uh, yeah, right, they're swingers, aren't they? But the, the thing is, so Gawain's quite keen to move on. He's got a quest to do. Time is ticking, he knows. But Lord Bertalak says, actually, you're very close to the Green uh, Chapel. Relax. You, you've got two or three days. Stay here, relax, you know, and this game is played out. The Lord goes out hunting, and I misspoke earlier. He didn't get his green girdle back. Turns out the green girdle is here, I think, isn't it? Or, or maybe she took it off him when they, when he fell asleep in their place. I don't know. But in the poem, this is where the green girdle appears. I see. And so it's a bit clearer in the poem what this is all about, in a sense. Is it a metaphor for his guts? I, you know, his, his courage? Possibly, yeah. It, but it's, again, like everything about this story, it's so subtle and so layered that it could be several things. I'll come back to that in a bit. Because uh, in the movie, the green girdle is also his wank rag. <laughs> uh, it's an entertaining scene, that, isn't it? But the... Because uh, what happens is that while the Lord is out hunting... The lady of the house seems quite smitten, taken with Gawain, who's after all a good-looking chap, and a knight, you know. And she's like all about, you know, she does something for him and says, doesn't that deserve a kiss or something? Kissy, kissy. And by the way, this is not like movie... Dib, 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 dob, dob, dob. You know, you've cleared you've cleared my back garden of, uh, of uh, bonfire. Bonfire twigs. <laughs> Can I have a kissy now? Here's five pence for the scouts, for the scouting. Oh, crikey. The stories I could tell you with the elderly women of, um, of of Lancashire, but no, sorry, so it's a bit it's a bit creepy like that, isn't it? And you know, this is not something added to the movie. You know, this is not like Hollywood romance thing where they have to have you know the the guy and the girl fall in love. This isn't the poem, you know, and it's strongly written in the poem. It's quite overtly written that that this lady of the house is really trying to seduce Sigourney, and Sigourney is well and. Here's the important thing. It's played by Alicia Vikander because she's supposed to very strongly re- resemble Essel, his girlfriend. Yes. So he, Gawain is terribly conflicted. You know, he obviously must fancy her. And she's very solicitous. And 
he seems out of his depth, you know. He's like, because he, in a sense, he can't refuse the lady, you know, the lady of the house whose hospitality mm-hmm. rests on. And everything she says is sort of true, you know. She, she, When she's demanding a kiss from the night, he kind of has to give it. But at the same time, he has a chivalric code to uphold and a girlfriend back at home. And he's also... I presume a Christian, a Christian code Christian also that code, you shouldn't, yeah. you know, that you shouldn't out of betrothal... Bed, better lady. And he's also so. promised to share everything he receives in the house with Lord Bertilak, which in the poem means that I think on two or three occasions for each day, he has to give Bertilak a kiss, the kiss that the wife gave to him. <laughs> so, and in the poem, you know, he really goes for, you know, he gives the kiss with the same kind of passion and love that, that the lady gave, gave to him, the kiss. So you oh, get these freaky. you get these transgressive. This is after scenes. the cup of mushroom, the cup of mushroom soup, though. Isn't it, it is exactly. Who knows what this all means? And in the film, this is just crazy, isn't it? And in the film, during one of these uh, uh, you know fiery embraces, these clenches, this is really hot scene actually, where she's kind of trying to seduce him, and they're face to face, and he's obviously getting hot under the collar, and uh, she's got the girdle on, and he when her, so as he recognizes this, he. he Reaches his climax and he comes on his uh, on his girdle, uh, because what she's doing, she she wants to give him this girdle because she knows it's enchanted, witchcraft on it will protect him, and she doesn't want you know this guy that she's into to die at the hands of the Green Knight. So Gawain, obviously, so Gawain is terribly, um, what's the word in the poem? He's conflicted about taking this magic. And then going to meet his fate because it's sort of like cheating the game, right? It is cheating the game, definitely. Yeah. Now in the film, you don't really get that because he's been given it from the outset and he set out on his quest with it. But in the poem, imagine he's just being offered this now, and this girl, this woman, is saying, "Look, you know, don't die. Wear this, and you'll be fine." And then you can come back, and perhaps we can carry on. It is definitely cheating, you know. It's 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 an old-fashioned poke to an old to to, to a computer game where you put in you put in the secret cheat. It's interesting that. you say that though. The Green Knight cheats. The Green Knight was using some kind of magic because when he had his head chopped off, you know, being able to pick your head up afterwards—that's not that's magic. That's witchcraft. Well, that is magic. So, yeah. and he didn't say in any stage you can't use magic to avoid being beheaded. So I don't think it necessarily is, but clearly Gawain thinks it. You know, it is against the spirit of the game, and you clearly think that too. You daft, daft Arthurian knight, you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I just loved the way uh, you know Simon Armitage was describing this. You know, you've got these different layers of transgression. You've got this guy who, in the poem, he's wearing this item of women's clothing, which is cheating on the game. It's also cheating because he's not saying to Lord Bertilak, I found this, your wife gave me this in the house. I should share it with you. It's a magic girdle. Whilst he's kissing Lord Bertilak to fulfil his rightful place in this weird sex game that they have going on. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, he's obviously enjoying the time he's spending with the uh, very attractive it, it, Lady Bertilak. Yeah. So you can imagine, again... Particularly for its era, this poem is crazy transgressive and really interesting. It is. So in the movie, we only he only really kisses the Lord once he's leaving. That's right. He doesn't want to head, head, head out. Yeah. 
Yeah, once at the end, so it's kind of subdued. But what's interesting is, you know, we look at cob pieces in late Renaissance or post-Renaissance Europe as being these very strange kind of, you know, contrary to to our ideas of of people before us. For some reason, we, we assume that people before us weren't very sexual. Yeah. I don't know why we, we assume that. And that somehow, you know, the puffery of court wasn't sexual puffery. Or that because of the strict monogamy laws that Christianity enforced and, you know, no no sex, no viewed or known sex outside of wed- wedlock. That doesn't mean that people didn't visit prostitutes often. Because of all that, somehow that cod pieces were shameful or just just out of character to the era. Well, they weren't at all, you know. I mean, men peeing in the street was just something that they did until very recently. Uh, and men wearing cod pieces was just a thing at the time, you know, these ridiculous exaggerations of virility. Uh, so all that is, we, we view it with a, with a lens that we know somehow the morals and levels of embarrassment or shame that people would have in the past. And we don't, do we, plainly? So so I don't know if this would read strange to 14th century people or not. What do you think? Well, certainly it is true that, say, the kiss between Lord Bertillac and Gawain may not have coded homosexual. There was a sort of homosocial thing that went on where it was much more common of for course. men to yeah. hold hands and kiss and stuff in that era. Not necessarily sexually. But on the other hand... Well, probably not sexually. Yeah, in this poem... There is an attempt to code it sexually because it is in this framework of this weird game. Ah. So it, it was perhaps an act that may have happened and people would have been familiar with. But in the context of the Sigourney story, maybe it is much more transgressive and weird. And the other weird thing about this sequence is one reading of this, which may have occurred to you, I don't know. But again, remember that it's Lady Bertilek who gives him the green, green... Girdle, Girdle, is that actually Sir Bertilac, Lord Bertilac, is an aspect of the Green Knight, and this is part of the test. Right, so it, it, it's you know layer upon layer again. Rather like Rosencrantz and Guildenstein, scenes within scenes, you know, yeah. microcosms, worlds that exist within itself. You know, we get we get like a uh, a mama's play or somebody put on a Punch and Judy show of the story itself as he's heading out. Kind of thing. Yes. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's some idea, therefore, that the story itself is being told as a story and we're not really getting the real news behind it kind of thing. Yeah, well, exactly. This whole thing is framed at the start as Sir Arthur says, tell me a story. I mean, maybe this is the story that Gawain spins. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, as, as a story that travelled round in the, in the medieval time... Of course, you want to gonna put some uh, some soap opera elements into yeah. it, like oh, man and man kissing, <laughs> etc. But you know exactly as you said about our contemporary attitudes to people of the past. We also think that they were just generally less sophisticated. But this story demonstrates that you know they people were happy with lo- lots of levels of sophistication and, and you know symbolism. Yeah. You know, perhaps far yeah. more so in some senses. I mean, this is much more complicated than most of the other films we've watched. <laughs> and Beowulf itself, which is Anglo-Saxon through and through, is deeply metaphorical. But the language there is highly well. The meter and you know the, the, the poetry of it, it for to you know for the poet tellers to remember this 
remember this whole story and repeat it verbatim is just incredible you know the sophistication of the storytellers but you know the poetry and the, and the verse and the meter but also the kennings you know the inventiveness of the the the, the metaphorical noun and noun con- conjunctions that create these kennings inside beowulf is i mean it's almost amazing to behold so so yeah i mean creativity doesn't come with technology does it technology only enables our creativity so yeah i mean why why do we assume that humans were less artistically creative in the past than we are now it's it's a silly idea really isn't it? totally yeah yeah gawain leaves the Bertalax household and he journeys to meet his fate yeah he goes on to meet the green knight in the green chapel he kneels down before the green knight and presents the axe to to him and in the in the movie again it's a bit of a I think there's a bit of a difference here. But in the movie, uh, Gawain flinches from the blade mm. once, twice. He does it again after he tries to get the courage. Uh, and then he has a vision of him keeping the sash on and then running back, leaving the green uh, green chapel, running back. and Running away. Sir Arthur yeah. sickens and dies. He sees in his vision. Uh, we assume it's a vision. And uh, uh, he becomes king. He has uh, his girlfriend Essel bears a child, but because she's a peasant and a prostitute, he forswears her, keeps the kid, marries a princess, and you see his life kind of unraveling, don't you? As he, he's obviously not a very yeah, good exactly. king, and uh, I think he loses his son in battle. So, which from which we are to summarise that cowardly actions have consequences, and that you can't take flight from your fate, kind of. Yes, generally. Yeah. Would that be one level of interpretation? I think so. And again, you know, in a sense, I think this is a modern take on the story that I'm not sure this, this sort of stuff is in the poem so much. But no. so he, as a consequence of this vision, at the end of which, by the way, he, he's sat on the throne and there's a knocking on the door. Someone is trying to get in. Maybe it's a green knight coming to finally claim him. Who knows? But he takes off the sash and as he does so, his head falls from his shoulders. And, and he's dead anyway. Sort yeah. of. Yeah, karmic justice has occurred in a way, I suppose. He sort of snapped out of that vision. He's still in the Green Chapel and the Green Knight is there. And he volunteers to take off the sash, I think, at that point. And at that point, the Green Knight sort of speaks to him. And I think he sort of says, well done, Sigourney. And he says, if he's passed the test in a way. Now it's time to die here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says, I think he makes the... You think his bravery would get earn him a reprieve, but it doesn't do. Well... This is the interesting thing about to... how our mindset is maybe different from medieval. Uh, well, it's left ambiguous in the film. He says, are you now off with your head or time or something, doesn't he? And sort of makes a motion across his throat. But in the poem, he obviously dies. No. He meets no, his fate. No, no. Oh. And I think it's deliberately left ambiguous in the film. You're not really sure whether... Whether because it could be interpreted that the Green Knight just did that as you know a joke at the end and he's free to go. In the in the poem, I think he maybe leaves the sash on, and the the, the knight tries to cut him three times, and the third time it is he nicks his neck, and I think that's wow. to indicate that he didn't share the sash with Lord Bertilac, perhaps, and uh, and therefore cheated in that game. But he's then free to go, and he goes back to Camelot. Wow. The knights think that he'd done well, that he's a hero. But Gawain thinks that he'd failed the test. So in the end, you know, he can't escape his own sense of... That's right. He's in his own, like he's a, in his own game, like a really. male chastity, so to speak, yeah. or male, male, male chivalry. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
the past will come back to haunt him. You know, really subtle and complicated. There's no mm. easy answers to to, uh, to all of this. Again, on the In Our Time show, I think they were saying, yeah, in a way, this is a story about humanness. That, you know, even with high chivalric codes, even Sir Gawain, the greatest knight, he's in some of the stories considered the greatest knight of the round. It's fallible, He's yeah. just human, yeah. He does everything right, in a the- way, and he does... But he gets it wrong, you know, in a way that's entirely human, entirely understandable. The lady launches a ruddy-faced speech toward him, somewhere towards the end, that kind of hints at these themes, I think. She says, you know, whatever you do, moss will fill ye footprints yeah. as you tread on. The idea of the, the inexorable yeah. fatality uh, and fatefulness of our existence, you know, and that he had to meet a fateful, honourable death, you know, that's everybody's destiny. Uh, in in a, sh- in a sh- chivalric society, and that it's inescapable that you know you can't you can't escape this requirement to to fight and die. So so yeah, it was it was it was layered as you say, very quite subtly I think with all these uh, with all these metaphors and allusions and themes. So quite powerful. Making it by far the most complicated story of any of the movies we've dealt with, but I think that's it's good. I, I did enjoy it, Paul. What did you think? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, it's just for the moment he starts tripping, <laughs> or is it all imaginary, or is it is are we looking at the his storytelling here? Do we like slip from the Green Knight either not appearing or appearing in a story to him storytelling? I I, I like the fact that it was ambiguous, but at the same time, I would have liked to have known to what extent. He was tripping or not tripping during during the movie, but I think I I kind of disagree. I think the end is fairly clear in the movie that he does get his head chopped off. Why? It just for me, it is clear that it's it's going to happen. Whether it's in his imagination or not is a different matter. Could he not just have been saying narrative? Isn't it not just like a wry? No, because he's ready to die. He's reconciled himself with his cowardice, you know, and now he's ready to be a hero. He's complete, you know, and that's why. His actions won't allow a weak king to be on the throne. And therefore, his progeny and the future of his tribe or whatever will be will be secure. Because he's lived an honest and heroic life. I see. Okay. But he realizes he can't go back to be king if he's if he's a coward. He understands that. But he's not That's a coward. Vision, he's, he, he's not a coward. Well, not at the end, no. He's faced it. Even if he doesn't get his head chopped off, he has yeah. faced it. So yeah. he's not a coward, yeah. yeah. But the only way you prove that is like drowning a witch is by dying in battle, isn't it? Shall we score this baby? We've got to start with acting, right? Because it has to be commented on the, you know, the colourblind casting of Dev Patel as the going. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was obtrusive. I think, you know... No, it's, it, it, more, it's moreover... Modern casting. It was and, brilliant casting because he's absolutely excellent in it. And he's got... He's, he has actually got the kind of uh, Norman Aquiline nose. Yeah. That fits underneath those uh, those helmets, kind of thing. He he did very much look like the depictions of a Norman a Norman knight when viewed in uh, viewed in silhouette. Uh, the acting I'm going to score seven. The only annoying thing I found about Dev was like he kind of reprised his sort of wide eyed thing from Who Wants to Be a, his Who Wants to Be a Millionaire movie, Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, where he's kind of like wide eyed for the girl, kind of thing. Uh, and I found that really annoying. It's, it's just a bit too naive for the role here. You know, he's a knight. He's had a few ladies. He shouldn't be so wide-eyed about her. Uh, but, but his acting was really good. I really love the lady in particular. I thought she delivered some great stuff. She had some real uh, weight and gravity 
to her role. So yeah, seven in total. Yeah, I'm going to give it uh, an eight for acting. Oh, deeply impressive. Plotting. How about plotting, Richard? This ridiculously complicated plotting that operates on so many levels that we can't quite discern. I I, I think there's a point to be made that it might be somewhat unsatisfying for the contemporary era. Yeah, the elevator should stop at floors, not between them. But I think it's brilliantly clever and brilliantly layered, and I think it's justifiably an important bit of... You know when people were talking about uh, British values, nobody knows what the fuck they mean when they say that. And they certainly don't mean whatever they mean when they say the word British values. It's difficult to discern determine what British values are, but if it means anything at all, it's got to be something unique about our culture, right? And it strikes yeah. me that this kind of thing must be pretty unique. <laughs> <laughs> so I think British values probably are represented here, and for that reason, I think it's yeah. excellent. I do wonder whether some of the changes they made for the movie were in service of that, I quite like the fact that he picked up Excalibur to do the chopping, because that seems very significant somehow. But uh, I'm not sure some of the other changes, like the change about the girdle, made much sense or improved the story. So in saying that I'm going to give this an eight, I'm only marking it down on the changes they made for the movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, the plot for me worked except the fact it was a bit bedraggled and disparate towards the end but it's obviously intentionally intentionally so something else i was going to say paul is about the the poem i know we're not reviewing poetry but the poem one of them the meter in use is known as cog and wheel which i'm sure you've never heard of because i've never heard of never so the form is a very short cog which is usually like two words, I think, or two syllables or something, followed by a verse of more conventional poetry, in which he uses a lot of alliteration and rhyming. Like an example here, I've got a text up here, like uh, one of the bits. This comes at the end of a of a bigger text of other alliterative prose, but then you get the cog and wheel at the end, and it, it'll go something like, Purge grace, show made him so great share, but what what's so, so fair of face? face but night ah, with speeches scare answered to voice a case. I see. It strikes me that Cog and Wheel is sort of how the other Macclesfield guy, Ian Curtis, wrote wrote his lyrics. That's a very good insight. And love love will tear us apart. You know. Ah, sort of nice. Cog and Wheel for I mean, isn't it? For an oral tradition, I and mean, this might have made the mummers fairs, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, travelling bands... Of, of retelling, obviously that's a really powerful title, uh, title and rhyme way of, of remembering things, isn't it? That's that's how they managed to remember these really long stories in, in the retelling. So that's interesting. So if I get to plotting, what I have to say is yes, uh, a really good quest, a really good uh, quest that didn't descend to hey noni hey thankfully. And I thought they managed to condense the complexity of this of this poem into a film that worked quite well, generally. And like I say, I wasn't too beguiled by the bedraggled nature of the complexity of the layers of meaning. I think, by all means, have several have s- several stories to your building, but make sure the list stops off clearly at one or the other, and not in between. So in total of plotting me, I'm going to go for an eight. What did you score it? I gave it an eight. It seems like you enjoyed this simple. Oh, very much so, yeah. yeah, yeah. You seem surprised, Rich. 
It's a departure from our science fiction horror genres, isn't it? Definitely. Into, into well, definitely, yeah. fantasy or legend, uh, historical legend? I don't know. Strictly in the fantasy fantasy genre, I think, yeah. yeah. Special effects, then. You liked the CGI yeah. fox? I thought that was very, very agreeable. Uh, the giants in the mist. The giant Henry Moores. Yeah. Yes, the giant Henry Moores sculpture in the mist. Yeah. yeah, move. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give it a, I'll, not spooky, yeah. just weird. I'll give it a seven for all the special effects. Yeah, I'm gonna go six because well, why not? Finally, I, final category, you know, hey nonny nonny <laughs> or not historical atmosphere and accuracy kind of score. What do you think about all that? Oh well, I'm out of my depth here. I mean clearly the whole Arthurian no, legend you is clearly know a lot about it, Richard. So I think you're perfectly able to score but the whole Arthurian legend stuff is, is a giant historical anachronism that's why I include the word atmosphere anyway so you could just generally penumbrate those scores there weren't too many torches on the walls of the castles because whenever you see a torch no. on the wall of a castle it... I would downscore those you see yeah because the reason is as you may know if you have a torch on the wall of a castle someone's got to keep going around refilling it or relighting it or whatever you know, same with candles when you see candles everywhere right so for that, I'll give it a seven. I thought the atmospherics and just a general recreation of a historical period that we don't know much about, either the 14th century or the 5th or 6th century, or maybe the 1st or 2nd century, uh, from where potentially these Arthurian legends could have come from, uh, was great. You know, I thought this was highly convincing. I'm going to score it a nine. Overall score, then. A Christmas story, which should be seen every Christmas, probably, of... A Christmas story being told to King Arthur has got to be an eight. It is a highly dependable eight from me. This is a big recommend. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it as much as I did. So get ye down ye oldie cinema or open ye up ye Amazon Prime storybook <laughs> and jack a nori away to this one. A great one, yeah. Which brings us to next week's choice. There is no choice, Rich. There's something big and hot out in the cinema. It is no time to die. Uh, are we doing that next week? James Bond. Daniel Craig's swan song as the titular secret agent. Oh, weirdly, it does seem to be about kneeling heroes and facing death bravely too. No plot spoilers involved there. Ooh, okay. Cinema trip then. All right. Well, assuming we don't die of COVID or aren't arrested for shouting at the Tory party conference, we will see you for the next episode. Drive by Anon. cinema. And ahoy. Anani. Bye. Thank you.